Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley, one of the associate editors, and I'm going to be taking you through February 2018. Find out what's in the journal, see what we're looking at this month, and what you should, well, maybe signpost you to some interesting articles, although it's all good stuff. So, what have we got? Well, I'm going to start off with um, an interesting paper from one of my great friends, Professor Rick Body, and um, Ed Carlton from the UK, talking about this concept around troponitis and avoiding troponitis in the ED. This is something we've talked about a lot on podcasts in other places in the past, this idea of troponitis and are we using it too much or do we know what we're talking about with it? It's, it's, it is a challenge and it's indicative of a lot of things which have happened in medicine over the last few years. So there is a mildly amusing quote, and I think it's mildly amusing, that it's not going around the internet and Twitter and Facebook and things that when troponin was a bad assay, it was a great test. And now it's a great assay, it's a lousy test. And there's something in that, in that when we had a test which wasn't very sensitive in the past, if it was positive, it was great, told you the person had an MI. But now we've got very high sensitive troponins coming in. It's different. And we can now see a spectrum of patients. And that's causing some people, not everybody, but some people a real problem in understanding what it means. So it's kind of funny, but it's wrong. So there's no doubt that the assays for troponin have improved. And as I say, the high sensitivity tests have got a lot better. But the clinician's ability to interpret the results, to understand what this means, has not really kept pace. And you, I, I still meet a lot of people who are back in, you know, four, five, six years ago who really want to think of troponin as a yes, no test. And it just isn't. In fact, most tests aren't. But, you know, that's not how we use them. But don't tell anybody. So... We've got in this February edition, Rick Body, Ed Carlton, and they're starting a series that's going to challenge that knowledge gap, really in pursuit of understanding how we can use troponin testing sensibly and safely, and that we can understand what it means. I think there's there's more in this than just the troponin, actually. I think there's a huge amount of work which we need to do now as we get better diagnostic tests coming through for all of us to start understanding how they really work. And for most of us, we do need to move beyond that simple understanding of tests being positive or negative and increasingly think about them as test results adjusting probability and the risk of diagnosis. Much more of a Bayesian approach, if you like. So although this series is primarily aimed at troponin, because that's the test of the moment, so to speak, the underlying principles behind this are pretty much applicable to many, many other tests that we use in the ED. And I think if you're a modern emergency physician, you want to be good at using clinical tests and be a really good diagnostician or even a problemistician or a riskistician, whatever word you want to use it. I think this is going to be a great series. I'm really looking forward to reading this. Next, we're going to talk about ED attendances and whether or not they're avoidable. This is a moot topic in the UK at the moment. If you've seen any of the stuff which has come out of the UK literature, out of the UK press, you'll know that we're having a really tough winter, actually. We're following on from the Southern Hemisphere experience with the flu epidemics, and it's starting to hit here now. And There's some really interesting tales about how people are struggling at the moment. One of the things you see in the news a lot is this idea that people come to the ED for no reason that they're inappropriate attenders. And I don't like that term, and it's not a term which is used in this paper, actually. This term, inappropriate attenders, it's, it's kind of blaming patients for being there. And this debate about how many patients shouldn't be attending the ED, and if only the patients sh- who shouldn't be there weren't there, we wouldn't have a problem. And actually, it's not really true. And I get a bit annoyed about the inappropriate attendance. I don't like the term. There's a better term, which is avoidable attendance. So are there a group of patients who come to the ED who might be better served elsewhere? I think that's probably a reasonable thing to do. So 
At the moment, a lot of the debate around this group of patients in the media particularly is based really on personal opinion, politics or organisational bias. It's a good excuse to say it's somebody else's fault. Blame the patients for the fact that the emergency care service is overloaded. But the evidence really isn't there. So this month, there's quite an important paper, and it's based on the Royal College of Emergency Medicine Sentinel site. So this is 12 UK sites who record very detailed data on what's actually happening out there. And this is a much better way of us understanding in detail what's going on in our emergency departments. And they've selected a whole range of different types of emergency departments. So we're getting, hopefully getting a sample of what is a, a national picture. So when you do the study this way, you don't come out with these crazy numbers, which I've seen in the press, where you say, oh, 70, 80% of people don't need to be in the ED. It's rubbish. They've come out with a figure 19.4%. And that's interesting. So that's a lot lower than you see reported in the press and a lot lower that's been reported in, in many sort of national documents. What's really interesting is there's quite a lot of variability between departments. And I think I see that in my own practice. In the adult department, I don't think there's a huge number of inappropriate attendances or the ones that arrive, the avoidable attendances, see, I'm doing it now, is you skim them off to our co-located walk-in centre and that works. The ones who are left in the emergency department, they're there for a reason and usually a pretty good reason. In children's emergency medicine, there's a much higher proportion of patients who could possibly be seen in primary care settings. And I know that varies in things like um, eye departments and where you are, whether you're in a metropolitan area, whether you're in a rural area, what distances are like and stuff. So there is variability, and I think that's important for us to understand. Anyway, I think you should have a look at this. The bottom line is that if we're going to change the way that the emergency services are run and banish ED overcrowding, then reducing the number of avoidable attendances is not really the solution. And maybe we should be spending less time putting our all our efforts into reducing that group of patients and maybe more into the patients who generally do need to be there, who do need to come to hospital, who need to get um, access to social care, into acute medical beds, into acute surgical beds. That's actually where our problem is. So have a look at that. It kind of backs up my prejudices and you're probably feeling that as we go along, but it's important. So kind of linked to that is another paper this month by Rachel Meacock and Matt Sutton, who are here working in Manchester. And they've looked at this really, again, very politically driven problem of the issue around seven day services in the UK. So if you're not familiar with that, this is a strategy by the government to say that we should have essentially the same services running seven days a week. And there was some very interesting literature put out by largely by politicians to say that the mortality at weekends is much higher than during the week and therefore we need to change everybody's job plans and move everything around and spend lots of money reorganizing our services to make sure that they're the same all the week now that data on mortality i think has largely been debunked i think most people who've looked at that data don't think it really adds up the point is that we admit sicker patients at the weekend on average than we do during the week because during the week we admit the electives this is not a great surprise but it seems to be a rig issue for some of our political colleagues anyway there's four strategies that have been put in by the government to say, if you do these, mortality will go down at the weekend and it's more of a seven day service. So what Rachel and Matt have done is they've gone to hospitals in the UK where they've been challenged to deliver the seven day service in order to avoid the weekend effect as it's caused. And they've looked to see if that has any difference on mortality, because you would think that if there is something in this, it would. Now, interestingly, and perhaps not surprisingly, they've really found no difference. It's not affected the mortality. And this is a complex area. It's difficult. You'll have biases before you read it. But I would recommend you read this because it really does prompt questions on whether the time, the money, the pain, the frustration, and in many cases, you know, significant anger, which has been expended in the pursuit of the seven day services um, has really been worth it. Again, it's all this thing about where should we put our limited amount of efforts to make things better? It should be evidence based. 
we're a journal. We should be publishing the evidence about what's important. And this is the sort of paper which can actually have a big effect on the way that we structure our services. So give it a read. So change attack, we'll talk about another paper. It's a small RCT, we like publishing RCT. So if you've got a nice randomized control trial out there in emergency medicine, by all means, send it in, we'll have a look at it. And it's also on a topic which is fairly ubiquitous. It's laceration repair in the ED. So we know that patients don't like the pain of local injection. We've known this for many, many years and people have thought about lots of different things that they can do to alleviate the pain. So things like warming the local anaesthetic has been done, alkalization of the local anaesthetic has been done, speed of injection has been done, um, whether you inject into the wound or around the wound has been done. But what about ice? So ice we use to cool things down and to take pain away. You know, We do that for a lot of things. So does it work for laceration repair? If it does, it's pretty cheap, pretty easy. And the bottom line is that in this, I mean, admittedly, it's a relatively small study by Song et al. It does seem to reduce pain of injection and ice is pretty universally available and we do clean wounds with water. I think this could be something quite interesting. So have a look at this and see if it makes a difference to your practice. Yeah, RCT in the EMJ, always like to see a bit of that. Changing our clinical practice. I also want to talk about a paper looking about heart rate variability in sepsis. Now, I've seen a few papers around this over the years, and it's this concept, and it's it's not that familiar to many people, I don't think, is that a normal heart has a degree of rate-to-rate, beat-to-beat, if you like, variability. So it, it alters, but a stressed heart doesn't. It tends to keep its rate very much the same. Well, it changes over trends in time, but you don't get that beat-to-beat variability. And this has been looked at in a number of critical illnesses. And there's a nice paper this month in the EMJ looking at whether or not this is a, a vital sign in sepsis. So not many people know that a normal heart rate varies in this way and it's normal um, that lack of that variability is a sign of deterioration. Interesting. Um, It's also slightly different. Maybe we don't see this so much because certainly my practice for a lot of patients don't go on to telemetry. You just get sort of isolated ECGs or intermittent ECGs and and certainly our monitors don't necessarily measure this beat-to-beat variability. So it's one of those areas where previous work has suggested this might be useful. Unfortunately, in sepsis, it doesn't seem to be that useful in this particular study. But even though it's a negative study, I think you should have a look at this because there's a lot of stuff coming out now about wearable technology. And certainly if you've got an Apple Watch or something like that on your wrist now, it's it's measuring your heart rate. Don't know whether you know this, but it is measuring your heart rate. And we may be getting to the stage fairly soon where we'll be able to plug data out of wearable technology. And this is the sort of thing which might be useful. So have a look at it with that head on. It's a bit blue sky thinking. It's not worked on this particular occasion, but it's an interesting concept and a different way of using data than we do normally in the emergency departments. So sticking with ECGs, um, nice study from Canada looking at patients who have PEA, so pulses electrical activity, if you like. Uh, cardiac arrests, and then looking at their initial ECGs. So does the initial ECG predict whether or not they're going to survive a lot? So rate, rhythm, QRS, ST elevation. The answer is no. And again, you say that's a negative study, but actually I think it's quite important that people don't predict or make big decisions about whether to continue or not continue based on that initial ECG morphology or initial ECG rhythm. If they've got PA my personal view, and I think it's increasingly the case, is you aggressively manage that group of patients. And they're often a low flow state, so use your ultrasound out there. We've had other papers in the EMJ that say that. But just looking at the ECG, don't use that as a predictive tool about where things are going to go. Now, PA, cardiac arrest, that links with our emergency medicine services, um, who we work very closely with here in Manchester, and of course you do around the world. So 
there's a, there is a variability though in what EMS services deliver. And so there's a nice paper this month um, looking at around a natural experiment in New Brunswick. And this is where you've got one sort of hospital service that receives patients, so depending on the trauma service, from two different types of EMS. One's a very basic EMS, one's a very advanced EMS. And it's a natural experiment, so it's not an RCT, it's not the highest level, it's an observational study. But what they've done is they've then looked at the trauma outcomes of those patients based on uh, trauma registry data. And you'd expect, perhaps, that the patients in the advanced EMS system would do better. Interestingly, they don't. Now, these papers are always incredibly controversial, so have a look at it and see what you think. There's always confounding factors, there's always bias, there's always geography coming into these things. But it's another one where we're struggling to find the true magnitude of advanced interventions in the pre-hospital space. Now, I'm not sure whether that's because they don't exist. My kind of feeling is they must, or whether we've not been able to define it. And they do talk about that in this group, about whether or not we're looking at the right group of patients to determine what the benefits are. But if you're into your EMS services and advanced EMS services and your pre-hospital emergency medicine, then definitely have a look at this. I'm going to finish off with two papers on alcohol, because we've just finished bit of an alcohol fest over here certainly in the UK over the Christmas period and a lot of people doing dry January thinking about the drinking that's a good thing we're probably all drinking too much certainly as a, as a, as a country we definitely are so have a think about alcohol in your emergency department because many of the patients who come to the ED and are intoxicated and quite a few of them are there primarily as a function of their intoxication so it's an important part of our practice so one paper on alcohol diversion. It's not toxicology. It's not about pharmacology of diverting alcohol in that way. We're talking about a concept on how patients with acute alcohol intoxication might be diverted away from coming to the ED. So this thing like drunk tanks and organisations in the community who might stop people coming who are simply intoxicated. Um, it's a controversial area, actually. There's been some quite interesting stuff around Twitter about, you know, what could appear to be intoxication, but actually is serious illness. And I'm sure anybody who's worked in emergency medicine for any period of time will have seen people who have been labelled initially drunk who turn out to have significant injury or illness. So this is quite a complicated area. But we also probably do over-medicalise some of our intoxicated patients. And I've certainly seen quite a few people intubated, ventilated and put on ITU, primarily as a function that turns out to be in alcohol intoxication even with relatively high levels of GCS. So that's it's an interesting question. It's an interesting group of patients. This is a concept paper. Have a look at that. And linked to that is also another couple of papers from Robert Patton and Giselle Green, and then another one, an editorial commentary from Fiona Wisniaki, looking at alcohol screening in the ED. Now, this is interesting to me because I think it represents an interface between the emergency medicine team and our responsibilities in public health and primary care. We do alcohol screening in my unit. It's increasingly being done according to the, the surveys and this is the third survey that they've done. So we're seeing more brief alcohol interventions being done in the ED, which is probably a good thing. But there is room for more. And, you know, even if we're doing more, the trends in illness would suggest that we're seeing more disease as a result of alcohol excess out there. So there is more to be done. Perhaps in dry January after a rather wet December and Christmas and New Year period, it's an interesting couple of papers to have a look at. So that brings us then to the primary survey this month. Of course, there's always other things to listen to, to look at, to read and to follow us on social media feeds on Twitter and on Facebook. I shall speak to you soon, but do enjoy your emergency medicine. I know it's tough at the moment. It's pretty hard out there. We're busy, but you know what? We do amazing things. It's a great job. Have fun. I'll see you in March. <laughs>